Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24. I'm Carlotta Rubello here in London. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll go through some of the highlights from the past week of coverage here on Monocle 24, from the very best interviews to reports and even a bit of music. Coming up on today's programme, a big week for global leaders as the G7 meeting wraps up and the NATO summit got underway in Madrid. Monocle was there and we heard from Slovenia's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Tanja Fajon. The message of Slovenia is we, of course, want to be a reliable partner. Mm. We want to be a credible European partner. We want to respect the rule of law, the democracy, the solidarity, and ally with all these countries that are protecting the world order and try to have a policy of peace. We also paid a visit to the new Royal College of Art building, met the creative duo shaking up the toothbrush sector and flicked through the history of festivals and cities. Plus, we sit at the potter's wheel to give it a go ourselves. This is an old Fitzwilliam wheel, so a good sturdy wheel. Um, and these, unfortunately, now, you know, he's long since making them, but they're very, very good sturdy wheels, particularly for learning on. I've dampened it down with a little bit of water on a sponge just to give it a bit of bite. All that ahead and more, including a look back at the life and legacy of Italian businessman Leonardo Del Vecchio. That's all coming up over the next 60 minutes, right here on The Curator, with me, Carlotta Rubello. This is The Curator and I'm Carlotta Rubello. The beginning of the week was marked by events in Washington, D.C., where the Congressional Committee investigating the riot of January 6th last year, when supporters of Donald Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol building, called an unexpected session, citing recently obtained evidence and fresh testimony. Mark Edelman is a long-standing media strategist for politicians on Capitol Hill, and he was in the room for the most recent hearing of evidence last week. He spoke to Monocle's US editor Chris Lord about what might have prompted this surprise hearing this week. select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol will be in order.
This isn't easy to watch. I want to warn everyone that this video includes violence and strong language. does the right thing, we win the election. All Vice President Pence has to do is send it back to the states to recertify. And we become president, and you are the happiest people. Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a, a sad day for our country. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength, and you have to be strong. Mark Edelman there in conversation with Monaco's Chris Lord earlier this week on the Monaco Daily. This was an important week for diplomacy, starting with the meeting of the G7 leaders in Bavaria to the NATO summit in Madrid. Delegates at such occasions spend a lot of time being wrangled into photo opportunities. But one such event at this NATO summit seemed unusually significant, a gathering of NATO's currently serving women foreign or defence ministers, eight in total. One of them, Slovenia's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Tanya Fayon, spoke to Monaco's Andrew Muller at the summit in Madrid. And Andrew began by asking how Minister Fayon had found her first NATO summit as foreign minister. It's very interesting. Of course, it's very challenging. We are having a huge responsibility now, first month of the government, first summit for me. But it's good to see this unity or this solidarity you can feel between the partners of NATO alliance, also with the other partners. I had a lot of bilateral meetings and the message of Slovenia is we, of course, want to be a reliable partner. Mm. We are condemning the Russian aggression in Ukraine. We will continue our humanitarian development support, also military 
humanitarian support, even though we are a small country. Um, but my main message when I took over the ministry is that we want to be a credible European partner. We want to respect the rule of law, the democracy, the solidarity, and ally with all these countries that are protecting the world order and try to have a dialogue of peace or a policy of peace, um, stability, security. So, Do you get the sense, because it's certainly something that struck me, that all of that stuff about the rule of law, rules-based order, etc., is is much more deeply felt by those European countries, which, if you like, are newer to it and perhaps don't take it for granted in the way that the countries of of Western Europe do. You could uh, feel some shift or differences between um, the East or the West, hmm. but I wouldn't say that's the clear line. Maybe because we are newer democracies or we have less uh, history, hmm. um, but nevertheless. Slovenia has always been, in a way, uh, very much committed to European integration and to our international obligations. We are a small country, therefore we need a strong unity and we need to be a partner of international organizations because we are maybe even more fragile, more vulnerable. And we live in the region that 30 years ago suffered bloody wars, if you think of the Western Balkans. Mm. So for us, the Western Balkans and the security in our region is of extreme importance. And even in today's discussion, with the war on European soil, with the war in Ukraine, we are facing possible new security threats in our direct neighborhood. That is why we are really strengthening the need, don't forget and left behind the countries of the Western Balkans. The enlargement process is extremely important to keep peace and stability also for the whole Europe and the world. I was wondering if an event like this was fascinating for you on a level it might not necessarily be for other politicians because, you know, once a journalist, always a journalist. What do you get to see that you didn't used to get to see when you came to these things sitting on the other side Mm -hmm. of the microphone? Okay, this is more personal question, but it's uh, very good to see the commitment of all world leaders that are together at one table. Every sentence counts, what is mm. the message, and today I felt quite a strong unity, uh, even maybe greater unity than usually when you're back home and you deal with the domestic issues or challenges. But being uh, before a former journalist myself, today, maybe after 20 years, I entered the press room here. <laughs> and I think it was the last time in Madrid for the big NATO summit that I was working as a journalist. So it also brings some, maybe nostalgia, a little bit of the feeling that on one hand, being a journalist myself in the past, I just met a Jordan foreign minister who reminded me that he had the same past. So obviously we are quite some colleagues in politics that had the same past also experience in journalism. And you can tell me, it's only our listeners listening, have you heard anything while you've been talking to the other foreign ministers where there's been even a part of you that just thinks, gee, I wish I could call my editor and tell them that? I was today very much inspired to meet the female ministers, mm. the defence and foreign ministers. We had a, our first meeting, we said we are 10, 11 at the table. It's still underrepresented at a, such a big table. Mostly it's a male, but it's a topic that got close to my heart because it's about women, in not only in negotiating or war processes where can play a strong role, but also peace, security, equality. And we are really 
trying hard to connect also during the summit. This is a topic that normally doesn't come to people. That was today the occasion I would call my editor and say, please do report. It's only few of us, but we want to be heard. This was, of course, the big photo call earlier of mm-hmm. all the female foreign and defence ministers who are gathered here. And I'm always a bit nervous about framing this question because on the one hand, it seems like a really hack question. But on the other hand, I do wonder, well, certainly from your point of view, if you think there's anything to it that as a general tendency, do women approach questions of defence and security, even at a nation-state level, in a different way to the way in which men traditionally have? Absolutely. I think we have a much stronger sense for women in need. Sexual violence is, for example, like a tool in war to be used. Quite often we see it in Ukraine. So this is something, these are topics that um, we have to raise our concerns. And women, it's um, no one uh, acknowledged that they are very good in negotiation, war negotiation processes, and they are not used to the extent we could use them. So um, we have to bring these issues on the table. We have to protect women. Even now in the war in Ukraine, when we see a lot of women fleeing with kids, we have to stand in solidarity with them, help to help them. And quite often that is the women voice that is to be heard than the general discussion you see at the summit. Are you able to quantify how the approach is different? And again, it's a cliched analysis of it, but is it perhaps less reliant on confrontation and less reliant on posturing? We had a discussion today, I think it was a Norway Prime Minister that very nicely said we have to put always uh, gender issues or look through the lens of women, peace and security also in all our strategic documents. That is Mm. why we put it also today in the document. So it's not something that is self-obvious, but we have still a lot of work to do. I want to talk about the region that Slovenia is, is situated in and about the Western Balkans and NATO Obviously, most of the Western Balkans, most of the former Yugoslavia is, are now NATO members. How important is it, do you think, that NATO works harder and faster to try and bring Bosnia-Herzegovina in? It's not most. There are three countries that are part of a NATO mm. alliance, and Bosnia-Herzegovina and Kosovo. Certainly, we want to support um, that NATO enlarges. Um, and it's not only about NATO alliance, it's also European Union's mm. um, enlargement process. What I mentioned before, it's about peace and security, stability. All these countries are facing economic challenges, political challenges, but I think the message was even more important to show the Western Balkans that Europe is present there, there is no alternative to the enlargement, even though in Europe we speak about a broader European political community. I don't know if you're aware, Slovenia recently gave an initiative also to Mm. give a candidate status to Bosnia and Herzegovina, to think a little bit out of the box if that we simply fasten the procedure. So I think a lot is at stake. Slovenia's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Tanja Fajon, there in conversation with Andrew Muller at the NATO summit in Madrid. You're listening to The Curator on Monocle 24. I'm Carlotta Robello here in London. Leonardo Del Vecchio, the billionaire founder of Luxottica, the eyewear company that owns brands such as Ray-Ban and Oakley, has died at the age of 87 this week. The fashion writer Dana Thomas joined Georgina Godwin to look back at Del Vecchio's life and legacy. And she started by telling Georgina about his humble beginnings. 
he was born to, I mean, he wasn't an orphan, but he was put in an orphanage. His father was a a vegetable sale, you know, peddler who died before he was born. His mother already had four children. She couldn't look after him. So he was raised in an orphanage. And then he went to work as a boy in a factory, a metalworks factory. And he said, they didn't call me Leonardo. They called me boy. And he, and he was put into the area of making the hardware for eyeglass frames. And from there, he decided there's something to this. And he moved to a small town in Northeast Italy when he was in his mid twenties, and opened his own workshop making frame parts for eyeglasses. And from there, his company grew. And I mean, how did he make that shift from just a utilitarian piece of equipment that we all use to this high fashion thing? I mean, I believe that sunglasses have some of the highest markups in the world. Oh, they surely do. He he was he's a hard worker. His sister said there was never any hugs or kisses with Leonardo that he got up and started working at three o'clock in the morning. I was like, wow, I got to get my my set reset my clock (laughs) if I want to be the 52nd richest person in the world. And he uh, so he certainly earned it. And then he just saw the 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 future of eyeglasses as being more as utilitarian that you know we could actually make a statement with them and he his first deal was with Giorgio Armani back in 1988 back when Armani was still you know growing and becoming a, a household name and the two of them came up with this this idea of making signature logoed eyewear and it turned into a gigantic thing. And if you think back, you know, those old ads from the 80s, those late 80s and early 90s of Armani, you know, it's not that they just have the fabulous suits, men's suits, particularly they have great sunglasses. So from there, he signed with Ralph Lauren, with Chanel, everybody, whenever they wanted to go into the eyewear area, they turned to Luxottica. I remember Tom Ford, when he started his company, he said, you know, we're going to start with uh, uh, beauty and and perfumes and eyewear. And eyewear was what would fund everything else because the markup is so great. And because it's so easy to sell, you don't have to worry about sizing. You don't have to worry about it going out of fashion. It's even better than a handbag. Mm, It's the one thing that everybody can wear. What will his legacy be? Oh, well, his legacy is really important because he wasn't just a billionaire who was, you know, script raking in all the money. He looked after his employees. He started a welfare system in his company, a person, you know, an internal welfare system where he looked, he paid for vacation. He paid for this education of his employees, kids. Like he really went for it. He set up a, you know, like a secondary welfare system within the company. So if the country didn't give you enough, he looked after you. And he he did a lot of work in um, restoration and protection of beauty and UNESCO heritage sites, such as the Dolomites around where the national park around where his headquarters are. He um, established the the Del Vecchio Foundation, a nonprofit that gives money to all sorts of things and, and created a new hospital in Milan during the COVID-19 pandemic. He was very, very generous and very, um, and he looked after people because he realized, you know, without people, nobody was going to buy his glasses. Mm. And finally, (laughs) how will his uh, death impact the company? Well, he, you know, he worked and worked and worked. I don't think he ever officially retired or if he did officially retire, he still was, he was still had his hand in things. He was working well through into his 80s. But it's, you know, it's a gigantic company now and he put a lot of people in place. So it will it will carry on just fine. It is the dominant. Chances are, if you're wearing glasses, they were made by uh, by uh, Luxottica and that's not going to end anytime soon.
the fashion writer Dana Thomas and Georgina Godwin remembering the life and legacy of Leonardo del Vecchio. You're listening to The Curator. Next, we leaf through the pages of a new publication, Africa in Fashion. Published by Hachette, the book explores the craft cultures which have shaped fashion on the African continent for centuries, capturing the stories of contemporary brands and designers in the process. Let's hear now from its author, who's based in Cape Coast in Ghana, Ken Kwiko Nimo. Here, he talks to Nick Manis about the history of a special fabric, the Kente cloth. The masterfully woven kente cloth is one of the most beautiful, intricate, and fascinating textiles of West Africa, specifically of the Ashanti Kingdom and other regions around Ghana. The kente cloth was formerly woven by unraveling textiles that were imported into the forest region of Ghana and were primarily made from silk cloth that were imported through the trans-Saharan trade. It happens to be one of the most prestigious textiles worn by distinguished personalities and also for distinguished events and continues to be one of the enduring symbols of identity and culture in most parts of West Africa and in other parts of the world. The study on kente in Africa begins with an interesting myth. Some Ashanti hunters discovered the technique for weaving. Whilst they were on a hunting expedition, they found the spider called Anansi weaving the spider's web. That is where the technique was acquired. The craft evolved through the interaction of the 18th century Ashanti kingdom with other parts of the world to trade. It's woven on a loom, basically a rudimentary loom that has not evolved much for, I would say, close to a century. And yet, the weavers are able to produce some of the most intricate, beautiful designs. Kente is a textile that speaks to the evolution of African society, especially in West Africa, specifically the Ashanti kingdom, where the types of kente that a person could wear was determined by their rank in society. You could, for example, be banned, subject to very tough, punitive measures just for wearing a kente cloth that did not belong to your class. And so it is something that has really, really evolved. Today, the kente cloth is worn and used mostly by Ghanaians in a lot of Africans in the diaspora as a form of celebrating their identity and their connection to the continent. Today, weavers have access to different kinds of materials in producing kente. 
So instead of, for example, relying on the silk fabrics these days, they use rayon thread. The textile itself has been reinterpreted and has been produced in formats that has to some extent democratized access where we have textile mills that are able to produce printed versions of the Kente cloth, making them much more accessible in terms of price to the wider populace, making them also more versatile in terms of the manner in which they can be used. Traditional kente is heavy, not that much amenable to making certain kinds of cloth or certain kinds of dresses. However, the printed ones are more versatile and can be put to use in that manner. The kente cloth has been an excellent medium for a lot of designers. Generation Couture, a cohort of designers that emerged just when most of the continent gained its independence. Their names such as Kofi Ansan, Shade, uh, Thomas Farm, Chris Seydou, who took upon the responsibility to not just preserve these crafts, but also to elevate them into a status of icons. It is interesting how a lot of contemporary designers are not only just taking what exists in the traditions of most of these African countries, but are placing onto it their own twist. Creating, I would say, more versatile forms, pieces that are more comfortable. There is a designer called can take gentleman who happens to be doing something really interesting using diverse patterns woven entirely in kente for suits. It's literally a renaissance, one that I say has been built decades on the efforts, on the mission that was established by the pioneering designers. Not to forget the recent, may he rest in peace, uh, Virgil Abloh's representation on the, I think it was the fall winter uh, 2020 for Louis Vuitton's menswear, where he put the kente once again on international stage, further elevating the kente and making it something that a lot of people, both Africans on the continent and the world around, and other parts of the world would be proud of and would aspire to have. Africa has always been in fashion, both in the context of a continent that has been extremely relevant, either as a source of material or as uh, the destination for finished goods. However, the continent has been largely on the periphery of the global economy by way of manufacturing or by way of actually contributing and shaping the trajectory of fashion around the world. And that is what is changing. Today, a lot of distinguished brands have 
entered into spaces that were, I would say, out of bounds. Imani AC has shown twice at the Haute Couture in Paris. The Federation de la Haute Couture as a main designer two consecutive times. And these speak to the tenacity and the creativity of African designers, which is shaping and transforming not only how African fashion is seen around the world, but also the other aspects such as production and how it is impacting economies on the continent. Author Ken Quico Nemo there speaking to Nick Manis. Africa in Fashion is published by Hachette and available to purchase now. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're listening to The Curator, our weekly highlights program here on Monocle 24, and you are with me, Carlotta Rubello. This week also saw the inauguration of London's Royal College of Art newly designed premises. To mark the occasion, the outgoing class of 2022 will exhibit their works, ranging from jewellery to sculpture, textiles and paintings, in the freshly open premises. Monocle's Grace Charlton visited the inauguration for us and sent us this report. London's highly ranked Royal College of Art is opening its doors to the public to enjoy its graduate show featuring works from the outgoing class of 2022. The exhibition will be taking place in the college's campuses in Kensington and in Battersea and feature artworks ranging from jewellery to sculpture, textiles and paintings. Part of the graduate show is being held in the Rousing Research and Innovation Building, the freshly opened structure designed by Herzog and Dumeron a short distance from the RCA's flagship Dyson Building in Battersea. The new campus provides space for studios, learning and research, but also to exhibit thanks to the adjustable walls that can be reconfigured according to need. On short notice, the art and design studios can be quickly packed up to make way for gallery space. A large foyer that has been named The Hangar is where students studying various courses like contemporary art practice and innovation design engineering can socialise and exchange ideas. It's a much bigger and much more different setup in comparison to what we have in Kensington. Of course, the buildings as well are very different. Here, it's so everything is brand new, it's clean, it's white, you know, no one's been in here. And it's also much higher ceilings, which is great. Leah Rose Cara is finishing her master's in sculpture, which she mostly studied for in the RCA's Grade 2 listed building in Kensington. She tells us about how this new space will hopefully invigorate future students. It's very different because also the light comes from above and you have windows, but they're very, they're very different. I think the benefit is that you have the space. But then equally, hopefully in the future, they'll be able to block out some things and build their own rooms, because I can imagine people who need like a dark space or things like that, they can utilise that, which again, because of the building that Kensington was, you just can't do that. The space that you have is the space that you have. 
The South London-based building features a bricks-and-mortar facade with polished concrete interiors and an industrial feel that has been built to withstand students who sometimes operate heavy machinery and need to move big pieces of installation art around. In the brief, the RCA required a six-inch play area between the surface of the floor and the electrics and the water pipes below after sculpture students in the previous building drilled a little too far down and hit a mains cable. It's quite rough and tough in here, isn't it? You know, you're moving heavy kit around. You've got, you know, big, big pieces of art. You've got a lot of machinery. You've got robotics arms, you know. So all of these things do demand a very, very kind of robust base to them. Dr Paul Thompson, the Vice-Chancellor of the RCA, tells us a little more on the need for foolproof design. This isn't a moment for beautiful teak finishes or, or, you know, Murano glass hand-blown lampshades, you know. It's got that kind of industrial making feel, which actually I think is entirely appropriate to the way artists, designers, engineers, architects, you know, want to work. The new rousing building opens up to the neighbourhood around it, with full-height windows, two distinct wings on the floors above, and balconies that open onto the street from the design studios. The Swiss practice Erzog and Dummerum won the architectural competition for the design of this RCA structure in 2016, thanks to their consideration of the Badassee neighbourhood. In 100 years' time, people are going to look at it and still say, my goodness, that's such a fine building. You know, I think Herzog de Meuron have really done us proud. They were a delight to work with, but I think, you know, they really understood the neighbourhood and were fascinated by the neighbourhood, which is such a an eclectic mix both in terms of the architecture you know the high and the low of Norman Foster buildings and then 19th century Victorian terraced houses of 1970s speculative office blocks it's such a hodgepodge but I think they've cut through all of that kind of that chatter The teaching staff of the Royal College of Art were also able to give their input and here to tell us more is Chantal Faust head of the Contemporary Arts Practice MA staff were heavily involved in the design so we were presented with the floor plan and we worked really closely with the project team at Battersea South in setting up these as studio spaces that could be converted into exhibition spaces for show so we wanted them to be really flexible something that we can use as our curriculum develops next year but also in the years to come We're still getting to know the space, and I think that's quite an exciting place to be. It's got a lot of potential. We can move things around. We've got a designated project space now, which we've never had before. The outgoing students currently exhibiting their art have only been in the building since March onwards, and only a couple of weeks for some. We spoke to Sarah Sasha, a contemporary art practice graduate, to find out how this new space has been received by the students. I am inspired by what people are doing in the school, definitely, especially like what people are doing in the robotics lab and everything has really inspired me to further work on my own projects uh, through robotics and add sort of motion-sensored motors and also within my video game I trigger this motor which is in the sort of physical dimension. So yeah, it's been really inspiring to see all these new technologies developing at the RCA and it's been really inspiring me to also further develop my own practice through the route of new technologies. London's Royal College of Art graduate show opens to the public tomorrow and will be running until June 30th across its campuses in Kensington and Battersea.
For Monocle in London, I'm Grace Charlton. A report there by Grace Charlton in London. This is The Curator. Let's turn to the entrepreneurs now, where this week Tom Edwards enjoyed something of a brush with brilliance because he sat down with an entrepreneurial duo seeking to reshape a sector that's been something of a closed shop, dominated by a handful of big corporations. We're talking about toothbrushes. Not only that, but they are attempting to do so while championing great design, accepting no compromise when it comes to performance and establishing market-leading sustainable credentials in manufacture. Geef Safarvi and Mark Rushmore are the founders of Suri, and they started by telling Tom where the idea for Suri came from. From the beginning, we knew there was this problem of sustainability, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But I think, you know, taking a step back, we wanted to create a brand that championed design, performance, and sustainability. And I think many of the options today on the market, you know, they are the most sustainable, but they lack in performance or design. You know, take a bamboo toothbrush, for example. It's certainly more sustainable. It doesn't have a battery. But if you ask most dentists today, they'll say electric toothbrush cleans your teeth better. And their clinical studies will show this too. So for us, it, it felt kind of like a compromise. How do we create a product that champions sustainability, but then also design? And then, you know, we looked at a lot of features. We asked people a lot of questions. And we found that while the products on the market were one, they weren't very sustainable. They're also quite clunky and not enjoyable to use. And really, the, the loyalty that we saw was a loyalty through familiarity rather than actually enjoyment. And so that's where we thought there was an opportunity to really you know, change the way people were looking at the category and then also the products that were, were coming out. And Mark, I guess one of the really obvious questions at that point is then there is that familiarity. It feels, if not a closed shop, certainly one where it's difficult to really get a lot of purchase and traction because there are these established names, most of which are operated by the big titans in sort of personal healthcare and hygiene. Clearly, it didn't scare you off. Why so? Where did that confidence come from? You know what? It's really due to persistence. And I I take my hat off to Give here because Give does not take no for an answer. Coming up with the idea and, you know, trying to work out how do we design a brush from the ground up at the start of COVID when you can go to the factories yourself proved challenging, especially because the majority of brushes on the market are made by a handful of factories. And so the manufacturers really encourage you to take their existing brush and sort of change the logo. And then you sort of sell it almost as like a white label product. But we wanted to do something completely different, something that's not been done before by designing it in a modular fashion so the components can be removed and then you can repair it. And so we spoke to 26 factories, 25 of whom didn't even try and go on mute on Zoom when they sort of <laughs> laughed at us and said, yes. but, you know, why would you repair it? Just sell a new one. That that will be awful for sales. And no, no, like, you know, obviously plastics are you know really durable. Why would you want to create them using different materials? And, you know, we sort of kept explaining, no, no, this is the reason why, and these are the reasons we believe are important. And unfortunately, in the end, the 26th factory, the owner sort of saw our vision and went with it. And so we've designed something from the ground up in a totally unique design that no other sort of person has produced. Now, I'm going to explain to our listeners that I'm going to have a little play. You can probably hear me opening and closing <laughs> the the box. It's a really lovely design objects and obviously here at monocle we're very interested in intentionality around well-designed things because if you're going to have something in your home why not ensure that as well as being fit for purpose it's a beautiful Mm. object that's made with some craft some consideration and also sustainable how do you go about reconciling all of those challenges because it's presumably relatively easy to design something that looks incredible maybe that has a beautiful tactility to it 
but maybe the function is a compromise or the way you can integrate Completely. your sustainable principles is a compromise. Was that, again, simply give trial and error, lots of mock-ups and, and, and just keep trying until you found the balance you needed? I mean, I'd say on inspiration, you know, well, my father's an architect and a designer. And so I guess, you know, I was from a young age introduced to It's in the genes. Design. Bit, yeah. But we were very fortunate also to find a partner in California to help us create the design with us. And now he's he's fully part of the team. He's joined us full time. During COVID, it was quite a special time to be creating stuff because you would reach mm -hmm. out to people more often than not, even if they didn't respond you know, normally, they would respond immediately because it was everybody was at home and they had a lot more time, I would say, on their hands. And so we were able to connect with quite a few people who were able to give us insights, whether it was on bioplastics to the best materials to recycle that would last as long as possible. Because inherently, we're using plant-based materials in our head and we need them to last in environments that are, you know, quite damp and, and also stressful in the sense that you're pushing your brush against your teeth. So, yeah, I mean, I would say that it's not been an easy journey, but, you know, just when somebody says no, we, we just say, are you sure? And <laughs> keep asking that. And I think to your question there, Tom, about, you know, yes, you can make something look beautiful, but can you also get the performance? Having worked and seen how oral B perform and, and how important oral health is, we knew we couldn't compromise on the performance of the brush. So the brush, for example, has 33,000 sonic vibrations per minute. Battery-powered ones will often have, to say, less than 15,000. But we know that above 30,000 enables you to create something called fluid dynamics between your saliva and the brush and the paste, which is what removes plaque more efficiently than, say, like a manual brush. Mm -hmm. But we've managed to do that in a brush which is about a third of the size of your traditional brush, which environmentally is really useful because obviously when you transport it, it has like a lower sort of weight times transport equation. But also what we found is a lot of people have their big electric brush at home. And when they go traveling, they use a, a manual brush, which they throw away because their brush runs out of battery very quickly and it's very large to carry. And so by creating a brush that's a lot smaller with a battery life that lasts we say 30 days, but a lot of our consumers have told us theirs are lasting 60 days. We've created a brush that hopefully people can use when they're traveling as well. How come if you can make something that outperforms the established players in the market, that lasts longer, which is better for the environment, which is more portable, which is far nicer to hold? I mean, I've been playing with it, like when you have a nice pen, you know, yeah. the whole time we've been talking. Why is there any other way of doing it than this? Do you think that you are potentially going to be not just a disruptor of this market, but a a refashioner of it. This is the future, isn't it? We'd love to go broad, obviously, at one point. I mean, we think, you know, the sustainable bathroom is a completely unmet need. I would say that, you know, this is a bit of a mindset change. We have a reliance and large companies have a very large reliance on petroleum-based plastic. And so the second you try to move away from it, there's a lot of reasons as to why you shouldn't and why, you know, you should look at alternative ways of recycling more. But we we fundamentally just want to do things differently. And I think that just takes a little bit of guts and also a willingness to think differently. Our goal is ultimately that people will follow us, right? You know, I think the big problem, which we didn't mention when we started, is that today over 4 billion toothbrushes are thrown out every year and they're not recyclable. We spent a lot of time talking to consumers as well as recycling facilities. And, you know, the number one thing we said is this head is made out of plastic. Why is it not recyclable? And the recycling facility said, well, actually, it's made out of three different types of plastic. You've got petroleum-based plastic, then you've got nylon, polypropylene, sorry, nylon, and then you've got silicon. These are three different types of plastic we have to separate. This is going to cost us two to three pounds to actually sit there and separate it. We're going to get 50 cents value. So we just don't have do the, the means to do it. Yeah. So it dawned on us that actually the responsibility wasn't really with society right now. I mean, ultimately, hopefully governments will have policies, but it's really with the manufacturers. And I think we're starting as a direct consumer brand first. We are able to own that supply chain, take back our products effectively and recycle them. Whereas 
larger companies that have been doing it traditionally don't have those means. A highlight there from the entrepreneurs, which, of course, you can listen back by heading over to monocle.com. You're with The Curator, our weekly highlights program here on Monocle 24, and I'm Carlotta Rabello. Now, festivals and cities are highly intertwined. Not only do they bring diversity, culture and fun to urban areas, but they can also be the driving force behind urban regeneration. And while festivals today can be an occasion, with people planning entire trips around a certain festivity, that wasn't always the case. Innovations in transport and the way we get around were crucial to change the nature of festivals and how they impact cities around the world. To find out more, I was joined by Margaret Gold, the co-author of the book Festival Cities, Culture, Planning and Urban Life for the latest edition of The Urbanist. I started by asking her how the relationship between festivals and cities has changed over time. It's a question of how far back you go because culture festivals and human habitations are kind of intertwined. So I guess they've always been important. But the thing which changes in more recent times is the ability of people to travel to festivals and to engage with festivals over a much bigger geographical area. So, you know, a lot of the festivals were related to religious or seasonal activities. They very much focused on the local urban population and maybe just the surrounding area. But something begins to happen in the 18th and 19th centuries where you begin to get the establishment of more formal festivals. And certainly in the second half of the 19th century, when you've got railways and steamship lines and all of that kind of thing and a a larger middle class, you have the ability to visit a festival, you know, for a short period of time. And that begins to make quite a big difference for cities. And they begin to see festivals linked to visitors and tourism in a way in which they wouldn't have done previously. Is it fair to say that before these changes that allowed for people to travel to festivals, that festivals were the ones travelling to the city? So it became, it was even more of an occasion because of that. Oh, I think so, yes. And, you know, quite a lot of the performers and someone would be travelling around to different places. I mean, in In Britain, for example, there was what was sometimes referred to as a festival circuit going on in the 18th and early 19th century, where performers were moving around and there were mechanisms for booking people and, you know, organising festivals. But the artists tended to go to the city rather than the visitors going to the artists. So I think it's that that begins to change in the 19th century. Now, let's look back to our urban environments. You alluded to some of the ways cities change in order to accommodate festivals and also what that signifies in terms of tourism revenue and investment, etc. I'm curious to hear a bit more about that and what are some of these ways that cities adapt to then be the perfect host for all these different festivities? Well, if you're looking to set up a regular festival, then generally speaking, those festivals begin in places which are capable of staging them. So places which do have venues, accommodation and so on. And if the festival is successful and regular, you begin to develop this relationship between the festival and the city. And particularly where you get support from the city authorities, then you begin to find that 
over time, the festival begins to have impact on the infrastructure of the city. I mean, if you take the Salzburg Festival, for example, it starts in 1920 and it starts with a simple theatre performance of every man in the square in front of the cathedral. I mean, they didn't have permission to use kind of venues at that point. And then gradually over time, they begin to use churches and so on, and they begin to create venues and performance spaces to accommodate the festival. And then of course, that gives you opportunities to have other festivals and other events as well outside the original festival period. So over time, you do find these regular festivals having a kind of cumulative effect on the city as the city responds to the opportunities that the festival provides for it. It made me think there as well about, for example, the Venice Biennale, where because of the success of having that festival regularly, now the city invites as part of the festival to open up other parts that are perhaps disused or abandoned and uses the festival as an opportunity for redevelopment. So it seems like it can go both ways as well. Yes, I mean, the relationship between festivals and regeneration is a fascinating theme. And Venice is an interesting example because it begins in the Giardini, which is a park. It was an open space and they built the pavilions there. And, you know, you add more buildings to it and you get to a point where you can't really accommodate the festival within that. And they they move into the Arsenale, of course, which is the old shipbuilding yards, which were derelict. And by doing that, they kind of shifted the festival geographically towards the city. But it also almost set the tone for the type of regeneration that was going to take place in the Arsenale. So in case of Venice, over time, the festival has really had a major impact on the infrastructure and the structure of the city, really. Finally today, we turn to one of the oldest human inventions, pottery. While people making pottery is nothing new, there continue to be dedicated potters who time after time sit behind the wheel to create something from scratch with their own hands. For the latest edition of Confect Corner, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs went to visit Studio Pottery here in London and have a go herself. It's both quite mesmerising, it's very tactile, you're creating a something out of a, a formless mass of, of clay and, you know, through your hands and the sort of marriage in a way between the, the speed of the wheel and, and the pressure of your hands, you're, you're creating an object which can both be functional and beautiful. And I think you sort of fall in love with that, really. Tucked away behind London's Victoria Station is something of a hidden gem, an ode to ceramics in the form of the glass-fronted Studio Pottery London. The space comprises a library of books on pottery, a shop in which you can purchase ceramics, and the all-important studio, which is bright and calming with a hushed sense of busyness. I'm here today to meet the studio's artistic director, Gregory Tingay, for an introductory lesson on the wheel. But before I'm introduced to the clay, let me introduce you to Gregory and his unusual background in the practice. I first started when I was 15 years old back in Zimbabwe, where I was born. So I was taught then and later became much more established as a potter when I was a novice monk at Buckfast Abbey in Devon, where I was taught by the old lady then, she was 75, Mary Boys Adams, who was the the person in charge of 
the monastery um, pottery there and she trained me up as her apprentice. She herself had been taught by Bernard Leach, the sort of pretty much the founder of British studio pottery in St. Ives in the 1940s. So it was in a good lineage and she taught me with um, rigour. <laughs> now to our lesson and on the agenda today, wedging or preparing the clay to be thrown on a pottery wheel, learning how to centre the clay on the wheel and throwing, which is when you pull up the sides of the clay in order to make a cylinder. I'm hoping to come out with something that more or less resembles a simple pot, but I'm also here to experience the apparent charm of using a pottery wheel. It seems so many people find that in the process. Easy to use. So what I'm doing here is just um, doing what's called ox head wedging. So I'm sort of using my body to lean rock into the clay so down and away, and I'm rolling the clay upwards. And you can see it here as I hold the, the sort of horns of the ox. And I'm pushing with my hands, leaning in with my leg, my sort of left leg, rocking into it with my body. Not too much pressure. And each time my hands are moving up and down and through and around. First up, we prepare the clay to be thrown, kneading it almost like bread dough and then shaping it into balls. It's a bit like, you know, sort of making meatballs or if you're not uh, a meat eater, sort of falafels or something. So just, just you know, nicely run it, keep it moving, keep it moving. Next up, we head onto the wheel. So basically, um, this is an old um, Fitzwilliam wheel, so a good sturdy wheel. In fact, this is the very first model that um, Mr Fitzwilliam ever made. Um, and these, unfortunately, now you know he's long since making them. But they're very, very good, sturdy wheels, particularly for learning on, because they've got this nice, um, big, blue basin around the wheel head, which is good for leaning and anchoring the arms on. And as you see, I've got a, a wooden bat here, which is fixed onto the wheel head with two pins, just sits quite nicely onto the wheel head. I've dampened it down with a little bit of water and a sponge, just to give it a bit of bite. Studio Pottery London has been here since 2019 and it's the only pottery studio in central London. As we have our lesson, others mill about in the background. Members of the studio who are here to throw, glaze or fire their own work. But it's also somewhere open for lessons, to individuals and groups and as corporate team building exercises. Of course, those are accompanied by a glass of wine. From the centre, you've got to move your thumbs from the centre away from each other. But you're not going upwards, you're drawing it along the base, along the base. That's it. So you've got to open it up, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep the wheel spinning, stop. Gregory demonstrates, then helps me go through the motions of making a simple pot, moving the clay up and pushing it down until it's centred on the wheel, then making a well in the middle and pulling out the sides until it's vaguely vessel-shaped, before gently raising the sides of the clay until it looks like a wide, handleless mug. Each element has a number of steps, and what strikes me about the process is how easy the repetition of these steps makes picking up a skill I had previously thought was out of my reach. Pottery is one of those wonderful things which you, you can come to it completely without any experience whatsoever. And if you are taught a nice, steady 
technique, you can pretty much end up making a pot, you know, sort of fairly, fairly quickly. Um, it's nothing to be daunted at, and if anything, it's something that is worth trying because it's um, it is manageable. I mean, it's much less daunting than setting out to be a painter in oils on, or a sculptor or something. I mean, in a way, pottery is, is like other forms of craft, is, is something that can be learnt. As I leave the studio, that tired sentiment of finding catharsis in doing something with your hands in a world which is more and more digital can't help but spring to mind. But I can't yet tell if Gregory's wisdom that the magic in pottery is found in the combination of utility and beauty is true. Maybe a little thin in the base, but we'll see what it's like um, after drying. I'll have to wait until I go back to collect my fired pot to find out if it does indeed have either form or function. For Confect in London, I'm Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced and presented by myself, Carlotta Robello, and our sound engineer was Jack Dewars. Join us again next week to hear highlights from our coverage here on Monocle 24. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.